0: I'm Nicole Demery, and I'm a former Catholic.
1: I'm Ashton Demery, former Protestant.
0: And welcome back to our Atheist Bible study, where God has hardened our hearts, and that's why we are the way that we are.
1: And we're going to be severely punished later. This whole thing is a ruse to prove God's power.
0: He set us up.
1: Uh, So we're done with Genesis completely. Today we're going to be starting off with Exodus, a little shorter than the last one, so it'll probably be about three episodes to close it out. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, This one covers the story of Moses, so you better believe that we watch The Prince of Egypt. That movie's the shit.
1: Yep. I, I mean, I, I can't hate on it I, as much as I want to. It's yeah, good, I really like movie. it.
0: It is. Quality.
1: So first story we start off with, uh, there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> so the old pharaoh that was good friends with Joseph is gone now. He I assume his son or grandson is taken over at this point. So new pharaoh's taken over. He's not a friend of Joseph, not a friend of the Israelites. Joseph at this point is dead. And he says to himself, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Which is a little weird to me because I last remember discussing that there were like 70 Israelites. Mm-hmm. And I, d- I just don't imagine they've expanded that quickly. But
0: Well, apparently they really get to it because there's supposed to be a lot of them by now.
1: Yeah. So Pharaoh uh, is trying to reduce the power of the Israelites. So he orders that all of the firstborn boys or correction, not the firstborn boys but all of the infant boys that are born now mm-hmm. uh, will have to be slaughtered he says they can uh, leave the girls he doesn't see them as a threat i guess and the wit- midwives are ordered to do this but they don't do it and they come and tell the pharaoh a lie basically say we try to do it but by the time we get there they've already given birth because the The Hebrew women are just so sturdy compared to the Egyptian women.
0: That doesn't make sense because I'm like, what, were you supposed to run up and stab the pregnant woman in her belly? Like, yeah, they're born. Now you take them and you throw them to crocodiles.
1: Yeah, I guess the idea was maybe the midwives help and then, like, they run off with the baby or something. But if the Mm. mom already has the baby...
0: He's, like, holding on to it. They're like, well, we're not going to try to
1: take that. (laughs) I guess so. Um, So Pharaoh then orders his people to kill the boys and leave the girls, since the midwives didn't work out, and God apparently treats the midwives well because they they did this.
0: It would have been so cool if this happened and then God was like, huh, okay, so I'll just send a girl. Problem solved. My next prophet <laughs> will be female. Like, that's how we'll do this.
1: Yeah, the whole thing is really weird because it's like, you're saying that you're afraid the Israelites are going to become too powerful, which, in the first place, the Israelites only became powerful because they Pilfered Egypt's grain mm-hmm. uh, through Joseph, and you help them do that. Yeah, and then also y- you could just wipe out the Israelites or kill boys and girls, and then they're not producing any more offspring.
0: I- well, yeah, they're definitely sending a message throughout this whole story about the importance of having male children, and specifically like firstborn male children. Yeah, that's how you really cut someone deep—is you kill their if you kill their boys, kill their sons.
1: Yeah, it really seems to be this idea that your your line doesn't continue unless you have your firstborn men. That they're, they're really the the heart of your line.
0: Yeah, that's why I have such a hard time connecting to these stories. And I feel like it's something I never noticed when I was like younger, but now that I'm older, reading this, I'm like, God, just give me one good female character.
1: Yeah, yeah. That as far as the why he would not just kill them all, I, I think the only thing I can see anybody trying to argue for that is that he wanted to keep them as slaves. So if you completely kill them off, then you don't have any slaves.
0: Well, yeah.
1: If you kill all the men off, you also don't have any, like, workforce anymore if you're relying heavily on manual labor.
0: Yeah, it seemed like it was just a way of population control. Like, he wasn't trying to, like, totally get rid of them because clearly they're still using them for their labor, but he's trying to, like, cut down on the numbers because he's worried about some sort of uprising or something.
1: Right, okay. So in this uh, section, they also talk a lot about what kinds of things the Israelites were made to do by the Pharaoh. Uh, They talk about them making mud bricks and stuff like that with straw and mud and then building these store cities and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Also, there is kind of this idea among Christians generally that the Jews built the pyramids and a lot of other major landmarks of Egypt.
0: Yeah, I definitely got that impression.
1: So I, I was looking into that and where that kind of comes from, and obviously it, it wasn't written in the Bible where I didn't see anything like that. Some people get it from the idea that you know they were building these mud bricks and some of the pyramids were made out of mud bricks. Yeah. None of those pyramids are really standing today because they deteriorated pretty quickly. And then also there was this guy, Josephus, who was a, a Hebrew man who lived in Rome mm-hmm. and was imprisoned for being a Jew. Okay. And then he, he his name wasn't previously Josephus, but he changed his name after he gets out of prison, um, and he writes a bunch of books, and one of his books expresses the idea that Jews built the pyramids, and that, that kind of spread from there. Okay. And then more recently, there was this movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings, that came out, and it also depicted Jews building the pyramids. Gotcha. But So I looked into that, and it's definitely completely untrue, the pyramids the major really all the pyramids were built more than a thousand years before there's any indication of Hebrew people being in Egypt
0: yeah and when I took a world history class in college they talked about how the history of Egypt is like so much longer than we could really even comprehend like they were around for such a long time that the time period where they were building pyramids to the time period that they were building sphinxes was like completely different time and we just i just feel like we don't have any real way of comprehending that considering america is so young
1: yeah one of the quotes i saw when i was looking into this that kind of expressed that was for us cleopatra seems like a forever ago mm-hmm. the pyramids were older to cleopatra than cleopatra is to us today is how old yeah. the pyramids are
0: right that's um, wild
1: and yeah so jews The first indication we have of a Hebrew culture being in Egypt is around 731 BCE, and they were understood, it seems that they were most likely, you know, traders, merchants, shopkeepers, and stuff like that. They weren't enslaved. And another interesting fact that I found is that slaves of any kind did not build the pyramids. Mm. They were built by Egyptians. Now, they weren't exactly what you'd consider willing laborers. They were... Sort of drafted, kind of like military draft. Isn't that
0: slavery?
1: It's a little bit different when it's not Were they chattel, paid? Right. They were paid. Okay. They're not chattel though, right? Like they're not bought and sold in the way that America, when we think of slaves, we okay. think of American slavery.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Right? And that's not how it worked. Well, I'm, it's yeah. a system called corvée labor, which is what they used if you build an army. When people get drafted in the army, you don't think of that as slavery generally. But that's effectively what this was. They would be drafted to do these work projects for a few months at a time. And then once the project was done or once their work period was done, they'd be sent back to their land, to their, their flocks, and uh, to be with their families again. So it's a little bit different than that, and it's not a different culture that's being enslaved. Although there is indication that there were slaves in Egypt, they just were assigned to different projects than stuff like the pyramids.
0: Okay, so I guess what to recap, Egyptians did have Hebrews as slaves? No. So they never did.
1: They had slaves of some sort. There's no indication that they were Hebrew slaves.
0: Okay, and they definitely didn't build the
1: pyramids. They definitely did not build the pyramids. Okay. And that's agreed upon, you know, broadly by archaeologists and historians. And obviously the Exodus story is really not considered historical by any of them.
0: Yeah, which is so funny to me because, like, it really does kind of get blended in. When when you're growing up and you're going to church and you're going to school and you're not really getting a good sense of world history mm-hmm. in our public education system, and you're also going to church and hearing these stories of the Egyptians, and so you just kind of like, they just seem to fit together
1: fine. Yeah, it, it definitely feels historical. Yeah. And we, in America, it gets represented as somewhat historical. Yeah. Even secular people, I think, they don't really think about it much, but they assume that the broad strokes of the stories are true.
0: Right, when in reality, it's not. It's This is like setting up to be a myth now.
1: Yeah, it's the founding myth of the Israelite people. Yeah. So, next part of the story is the birth of Moses. Moses is born to a Levite woman. So, his, this is the time when they're murdering all the uh, sons that are born to Hebrew women. So, his mother is trying to hide him away, and then she eventually goes and puts him in a basket and lays him among the reeds in the Nile River uh, because she can't hide him any longer. And then Pharaoh's daughter ends up finding him as she goes down to the river to bathe. And she takes him in. His sister is watching from nearby and she goes to the daughter of the Pharaoh and tells her, hey, I can find you a nurse to nurse the baby. And then she goes back and uh, gets Moses' mom to be the nurse. And she ends up raising him until... It doesn't. It's not clear how long his mother raised him. It says until he's grown. I don't yeah. know if that means just like no longer needs to breastfeed, or if he's a grown man and then now he goes to the pharaoh's house. I assume he was probably pretty young when he went to the pharaoh's house.
0: Yeah, it's very confusing because it seems like he goes to live with his real mother for a little bit, and then later is like, all right, now he come. It it makes no sense why they would put this baby up into their house, especially if they're not raising them. Yeah. Unless, like, the mother is raising them in the temple or castle or what do you call it when you're an Egyptian? What's the big house called? Palace. Okay, palace. Yeah, that sounds good. Go with
1: that. So next Moses sees some Hebrews that are being abused by an Egyptian. So he looks around himself and then he goes and kills the Egyptian and then buries him, which is really different than how I remember this being portrayed in the Prince of Egypt. This seemed very spontaneous trying to protect someone in Prince of Egypt, and then this. Seems very premeditated.
0: Yeah. Well, he definitely takes a beat to, like, look around. I mean, in the Prince of Egypt, he literally, like, it's like an accident. He runs up, and he accidentally throws the dude off the side of a a scaffold, and then he falls to his death. In this one, it sounds like he deliberately is, he checks to make sure that he's in the clear, and then he goes and kills the guy.
1: Yeah. So then, later, he sees two Hebrews that are fighting, uh, and he... Breaks up the fight and asks them why you're hitting, you know, your fellow Hebrew. Uh, and they ask him, what are you going to do now? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And so then he freaks out. Now everybody knows that he killed someone and he realizes he needs to flee. So he does. And Pharaoh is apparently trying to have him killed at this point. Mm. Along his way, he ends up helping some Hebrew women by a watering hole or by a well.
0: Wait, are they Hebrew or are they Midian?
1: Oh, yeah, I said that wrong. He helps some some Midianite women who are trying to get access to a well. uh, And he waters their flocks. And then they come home and they tell their father that this man had helped them. So he tells him to bring him home. And then he ends up marrying the man's daughter, whose name is Zipporah. Mm -hmm. And they have a son. And then the next thing that happens is Pharaoh dies. And the Israelites are still enslaved and they're calling out to God and their enslavement and then god finally hears them
0: i know it says god heard their groaning and god remembered his covenant yeah god took notice of them and it's just like what the fuck were you doing
1: man forgot his kids in the hot car
0: yeah (laughs) another thing that i noticed about the story is like they name their son gershom because it means an alien residing in a foreign land and i just think like. Oh, how sweet. Like, here's like a mini story about Moses fleeing a land where he's being persecuted and he finds solace in another land. And this is all wrapped up in a bigger story of how people are being persecuted and oppressed and not living a very good life in a land and they want to leave and go to another land. It just makes you think Christians should be pretty tolerant then of immigrants trying to leave their homeland and come to a new place, right?
1: Yeah, you would kind of think that christians would take that message to heart but at least in the u.s the religious right doesn't really seem to you get more of the narrative of you know if we let them into our country they're criminals and they're going to bring violence or yeah you know there's always this this fear mongering around it and if you look at this story moses actually does have a history Mm -hmm. of violence yeah and that's He's taken in still and treated well, right?
0: He's literally running away from this land because he murdered someone.
1: Yeah, and then he, but he, you know, has a future still in the story to Mm -hmm. do something great, at least in the understanding of the Israelites.
0: Yeah, but this is the Bible we're talking about, so of course you get messages like that, which you would think would be positive and would stick. But then there's other not so ignored. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's yeah, it's it's a mixed bag. With essentially after this, they go in go into the land of the Canaanites which doesn't belong to them and essentially take it over because it's promised to them by God. Right. And I think I think the superstition is really where it gets dangerous because you get these kinds of manifest destiny type ideas that
0: are Yeah, that's dangerous. what I was thinking about too. It's like anytime you think that God is the one telling you to do something, like maybe double check that thought. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So he's living with the Midians And he's basically a shepherd for them. So he's watching the flock and he goes out to a mountain and he enters this cave where he sees a bush on fire, but the bush is like not being consumed by the fire. It's not burning up. And then all of a sudden the bush starts talking and tells him that it's God and that he's worried about his people in Egypt and he wants Moses to be the one to go back and save them. And then Moses asks, well, like, what am I going to say to them? When they ask, like, what the name of their god is. Like, they don't know your name. And he just screams at him in all caps, I am what I am. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And it's literally in all caps. And then he tells him, uh, you know, like, don't worry, this plan is going to work. I'm going to strike down all of Egypt with my mighty wonders. He tells them that they're going to be so afraid of you guys. You just have to ask them for their jewelry and they'll give it to you. So then Moses has a couple more questions. He's like, what if they don't believe me? So God shows him a couple cool magic tricks that he can do. So he says, if you throw down your staff on the ground, it'll turn into a snake, which is kind of a fun one. Um, but then he tells him to stick his hand into his cloak. And when he pulls it out, he has what sounds like leprosy. Uh, it's kind of a note. It's just like his hand is like gray and looks like it's decaying.
1: Yeah. So
0: he gets some kind of skin disease. He doesn't use that one again. Yeah, oh, I wonder if that's supposed to be like the boils later on. Maybe. But yeah, I was thinking that too. That one never gets used. So then he says, and if that doesn't work, you can take a little splash of the Nile. Like he literally says, like, take a scoop of water out of the Nile and you can turn that into blood. And so then Moses tells God, like, hey, you know, actually, I'm not that good with my words. Like, how am I supposed to be a leader? People aren't going to listen to me. And he tells him, God, I think he's getting pretty frustrated at this point. <laughs> he's like, um, well, like. Who makes people speak? Who who makes people mute? I'll I'll talk through you, Jesus Christ. Um, and then he's like, Jesus, Rick, I don't really know. Isn't there like somebody else? <laughs> oh, Jesus. <geez, Rick. laughs> and so then God gets mad and is like, Oh my God, fine. What about your brother Aaron? Let him do the talking for you. And then God says something that comes off really weird. He says, You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach what you what you shall do.
1: <laughs> i don't know if you should be saying that here God. <laughs> we're in a tabernacle <laughs> yeah so a couple of things i had from this chapter or these chapters i guess who the hell is moses's father-in-law
0: is it Rue or jethro
1: or is it Hobab? oh i don't even remember that name yeah they keep changing it and it's really convoluted i i tried to read this whole article that discusses because it, it, at different places it implies different things and then it's like you can kind of make it work if you say, oh, maybe Jethro and Rule are the same person, and it's just different names. But then there's, like, Hobab comes up, and you're like, is Hobab like his grandpa, but he's calling him his father-in-law? Um, so here's my like, theory.
0: They try to play Midian like it's they're also Jewish, uh, but I kind of think that they're not. I kind of think that they're just, like, some different religious group, probably just pretty accepting of anybody who comes through. And maybe uh, there's multiple guys who could be his, for his father. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I,
1: I assume documentary, like, hypothesis is at play. Mm. I didn't get to go thoroughly into that for this one, but I, I just didn't care enough. It's If you look into it, though, three different people apparently could be his father-in-law. Yeah. And they're, they're not Jews. They're closer to, like, you know, the Canaanites or any of those other ones.
0: Okay. Well, because they say high priest, but... Later on, we get to a part where it's, like, questionable if they believe in circumcision. I don't want to spoil anything yet, because that's a fun part. But, um, yeah, so I was just kind of wondering, like, how close are they actually, like, religion-wise?
1: Yeah. Also, did you always, did the I am who I am thing always seem so weird to you as a kid?
0: No, it seemed profound.
1: It never did to me as a kid. It was always, like... That's a weird thing to say. And then, like, they had all these songs about like the great I am.
0: Yeah, they make it sound better in Prince of, Prince of Egypt because he says I am that I am, which sounds better than I am what I am. Because I just think of I am what I am, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just seems, it just sounds like a moody teenager.
1: Yeah, uh, there's definitely different like translations of it. They're mostly pretty similar though. Right. I was um, reading into this though, and, and what it's supposed. To what what it's supposed to mean yeah um so the direct hebrew Mm -hmm. is more like i will be who i will be
0: yeah i saw that in there too
1: the idea is that all the egyptian gods when they give themselves a name in a way that restricts their power because their name is associated with something Mm -hmm. like ra is associated with the sun Sun. Mm -hmm. or like other gods
0: or death or yes
1: so then by saying I will be who I will be or I am who I am mm-hmm. is saying I won't be restricted to any specific thing. This is like the establishment of itself as a monotheistic religion kind of.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Cause mm-hmm. I feel like whenever they try to explain God, they just, it's always some vague kind of thing that kind of s- should sound kind of deep, but it really isn't. It's actually really shallow and like, doesn't mean anything
1: yeah, I think intentionally so.
0: Uh, the other thing that's pretty annoying about this story is the thing that we were talking about earlier, where we're kind of given this idea that God can speak through people. And I feel like so many uh, pastors and priests probably think that this, that's what's happening to them when they like go up and give sermons. It's like, yeah. God is flowing through me. I am just a vessel, like that whole thing, where people just think like, basically, I am God. God is working through me. Yeah. All right. So Moses takes his wife and children and they journey back to Egypt. God is kind of giving him the rundown of the plan again. And he at the end he says, but all of this won't work because I'm going to be the one to harden Pharaoh's heart.
1: He, Yeah. He gives away that at the beginning. And then he says it again a bunch of times kind of throughout the rest of these. Yeah. Plays. And I
0: feel like this is... The writers wanting to like have their cake and eat it too. We're kind of sold this idea in the beginning that God is the one who gave us free will. And that's why we have the original sin because we made that choice. And so at first we're told all of your decisions are your own. Like you choose God or you don't choose God. But now in this story we're being told that God can harden someone's heart and keep them from doing something even if they want to do the other thing he can be the one to harden their heart for them, which is like.
1: And then punish them for it. And then
0: punish them for it, which is, it's fucked up. Yeah. Like they're saying, so all this oppression is happening and his people aren't happy and it's literally because of him. It's because he wants it to be this way and there's no explanation for why he wants it to be this way other than he he keeps saying he wants to show off his awesome powers.
1: Right. And it's like, if that's the case, I mean, why not just soften his heart 400 years ago if you got the power to control his yeah heart? Soften it 400 years ago and have him set the Israelites free and then this whole thing never happens.
0: I just don't... Well, yeah, obviously I don't like it because it, it sets up this idea that God is like potentially responsible for there being bad people in the world.
1: Yeah, it's either there's free will or if there, if he has any control over people's free will or or is willing to choose to control people's free will. And you have to see anything, any violence is really just for God's entertainment in a way.
0: Exactly. Like if this is all a part of God's plan, then he's a shitty God with a bad plan. Like he's just purposely making people suffer so that way he can make them fear him. And yeah, I just don't think he's doing that good of a job and maybe God is evil. That's all I'm saying.
1: I uh, did some looking into what Christians think of this. Uh, because whenever you find something weird like this, there's always something they, they got to explain it away. It. Yeah. So gotquestions. dot org. Uh, they say that Pharaoh already deserved the punishment for his crimes. Right. He's already committed the crimes, and therefore it's perfectly fine for God to harden his heart to have more reason to punish him.
0: Okay, punish Pharaoh, maybe. But there are other Egyptians where we're not sure. You know what kind of role they have in all of this? If they're the ones. I, you, obviously they're benefiting from from the Hebrews working for them. So they mm. aren't in some ways at fault, like, for that. But, I mean, for the most part, like, they're not the ones, like, pulling the strings. Right. And, you know, they're still making their everyday choices, and shouldn't they be, like, punished based off of, like, what they do, like how they treat other people, rather than just, like, this whole general punishing of all Egyptians?
1: They're not Israelites. They don't matter. Yeah. I also have a quote from that article that's, that's pretty interesting. From a human perspective, it seems wrong for God to harden a person and then punish the person he has hardened. Biblically speaking, however, we've all sinned against God, and the just penalty for that sin is death. Therefore, God's hardening and punishing a person is not unjust, it is actually merciful in comparison to what that person deserves. Oh my God. <laughs> um, and then the other one I saw was from the Gospel Coalition that uh they note that Pharaoh hardened his heart as much as God did. Because there's other passages yeah. where it says Gar- Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Right. Um, which doesn't seem to matter much to me because it still doesn't change the fact that God also uh hardened exactly. his heart. Yeah. And then if you read those passages, he's not exactly being truthful because he's, he counts the number of times, but a lot of those passages say Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't say Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's like two where Pharaoh says, where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, mm-hmm. but it says as God told Moses what happened, which God mm-hmm. told Moses he was gonna do it. So It seems like it's just another way of wording that God was ultimately doing it.
0: Right. Okay. So they're on their way to Egypt. They stop at this place. Then this really random event happens where God tries to kill Moses. And Zipporah like jumps into action, cuts off their son's foreskin and throws it at their feet. So this part's super, the wording in all of this is so vague. It's very hard to understand what's going on. Like,
1: Doesn't she touch Moses' toe with it or something?
0: It says, it's, yeah, it says that he touches their feet with it. But, it, okay. okay, here's what's weird about the passage, though. It's unclear who God is trying to kill because it doesn't say, it doesn't specific say, specifically say God tries to kill Moses. It says, I'm just going to pull it up. On the way at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and took off and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. So our version says Moses, but if you like, there's like a little translation, translation button. And uh, it also says, and touched his feet with it. And said, truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. So there's a lot of like... They're not using their names and it's just they're just using.
1: Yeah, they're just using pronouns. They're just
0: using pronouns. And so you kind of have to like interpret that. So we can assume, we're just kind of, it's all assumption. We're assuming that God is trying to kill Moses and we're assuming that she threw the uh, foreskin at Moses' feet. But we really have no idea what is going on and why the fuck this is happening.
1: Yeah, it took me several reads of that one to figure out what I thought was going on.
0: Yeah. So my interpretation of it is God is just very serious about this circumcision business. And apparently, Moses and Zipporah just forgot to do it to their son. And when God was about to kill Moses, Zipporah just was like, oh, that's right. We forgot and just quickly did it. So that way, God left them alone. Yeah. How amazing that God was like, you need to go free my people. Okay. Go do that now. And then instead of like, when he's giving him all the instructions, like, oh, and by the way, like, please remember to circumcise your kid, okay? So I don't have to kill you for that. And then, but he doesn't say anything, and then he just comes up on him later and is like, you know what, actually, you're not the guy. You didn't circumcise your kid. Why is his penis not mutilated?
1: Yeah. The the Christian response would be, oh, he was never actually going to kill him. It was just...
0: Mm, right, just like with you Isaac.
1: Know. You want to you guess who gets blamed for this?
0: Shut up. Don't say it's Sapora.
1: It's Zipporah, yeah. Of course, okay. Yeah, all the everything I read about this one because I was trying to figure out what's going on and what what it's supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's about like not fulfilling the covenant of circumcising the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but almost universally, they say Zipporah was not uh, a Hebrew woman, mm-hmm. and so likely she was did not like circumcision. And
0: yeah, as she should, because it's fucking weird.
1: Yeah, and then. You know, Moses was not a strong husband, so he didn't uh, make it happen or whatever. I did find one thing, though, a little bright spot in all of this Mm -hmm. our our silver lining. Yeah. There's a a movement called Liberal Judaism. Okay. And so I found, ended up finding one of their interpretations of this story. And they interpret it completely opposite. And it's about how women, even non Jewish women, can have an impact on the story. Zipporah is ultimately the one who makes an impact and fulfills the covenant, not Moses. Hmm. So they, to quote them and say, God is not weakened by giving Moses a stay of execution, but endorses the vital role of women in the ancient world to form and uphold covenants, as I believe women have done throughout time. It is only a dominant patriarchy that sought to deny this fact.
0: Nice. Okay, I'll, I'll take it.
1: Yeah, I I guess this is maybe a time for one of our, you know, regular...
0: Complaints about there not being strong female characters.
1: <laughs> well, that I I meant our disclaimers
0: mm.
1: about the fact that we don't hate Christians or Jews, Muslims, you know, anybody who believes the who any singular who lives person, by these, yeah. yeah, yeah, who lives in these traditions. As long as I guess I can appreciate it if you take it with a grain of salt and you understand this to be your traditions, and if you can interpret these things in a positive way. From a modern perspective, and use them to do good in your life, and you don't focus on the, the superstition.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, the more that we read the Bible, the thing that really stands out to me is how difficult it is to really, or at least in the Old Testament so far, find anything really meaningful from it. Like, other than just like silly rules like circumcision and like really getting at like, you know, how you should live your life morally. I feel like there's honestly not a lot of that
1: yeah that's true
0: but i get what you're saying i think my
1: main point is like if you grow up in the jewish tradition or the christian tradition and you like the traditions and you have empathy and respect for all other people and you want to use these stories as a sort of framework to reinforce that yeah then that's great uh you know good for you Mm -hmm. but if It's very different from what we see mostly in America, which is a real focus on the superstitious aspects of it and the judgment aspects of it, Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to just using these parables and interpreting them in a modern way to tell a better story, even if it's not really accurate to how it was originally written.
0: That's my hidden agenda with this podcast is I'm just trying to find the stories that I can use. For instance, the immigrant one to throw back at hateful Christians. Okay, so. So then they make it to Egypt, Moses meets up with his brother Aaron, kisses him, tells him the whole plan with God, and then Aaron is the one who speaks to all of the Israelite leaders and basically gets them on board with the plan. Yeah. Which is the start of Aaron doing a lot for Moses, which is really surprising to me. Even in the beginning, at the start of all this, when Moses tells God that he doesn't want to be the one to speak, and he says, oh, well, you can let Aaron do it. That is not how I remember the story at all. I don't remember Aaron having as big of a role as he does.
1: Yeah. I don't think we ever really talk about Aaron much.
0: Exactly. But he's basically Moses. Like, he's the one who does all of, like, the really big stuff.
1: Yeah, why do we have a middleman is what I don't understand.
0: Okay, that whole thing. There's this whole line about how God is like, you'll be God and Aaron will be the prophet. Like, what is up with that? Why (laughs) Why are we, like, now, like, transferring Power down like
1: that. Yeah. It's just like excessive delegation going yeah. on. Next, we have Bricks Without Straw. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He asks him to let the Israelites go out into the wilderness to worship and hold a celebration in accordance with their religion. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God, and I'm not going to let your people go into the wilderness. They have work to do. Why are you trying to help them cut work, basically?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then he decides, you know what? For now on, the Israelites are going to be built making their bricks without straw. Well, they're going to have to collect their own straw. We're not going to provide the straw for them. So now they have effectively double the work, and they still have to complete all of it. Same amount of bricks. And he basically calls them lazy when they when they're not able to complete this and continues to abuse them. This one's interesting because I, I did search to see if I could find any real commentary on this and there wasn't a lot.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh it's not a story that Christians seem to talk about that much. Okay. Um the only one I did find was from Power and Faith, which was a Black Ministry. And mm-hmm. it did talk about for me the obli- obvious implication for this, which is for underprivileged people and minorities in the United States or elsewhere. Yeah. And the rhetoric we use about them being lazy and not wanting to work and, you know, pull
0: yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. You can do it. Anybody can do anything in this country. Exactly. And then saying like, well, then you're lazy then if you can't, if you can't do it and can't succeed, it's because you're not working hard enough. Yeah. That definitely crossed my mind too. When I read this and it, yeah, it just made me think about like the study that they did where they made a bunch of resumes and then basically put what we think of as, like, white people's names, like Emily Rogers, and then more traditional black names, like Lakeisha and uh, Jerome. And they sent these all out to the same people with, like, they're the exact same resume, just the difference in the names. And white names receive 50% more callbacks than black names. So, basically, yeah, trying to make bricks without straw here. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, go get a job. You know we're not giving you any unemployment. We're helping, not helping you get educated. You need to figure it out on your own. And oh yeah, we're not gonna hire you. Yeah, yeah. When I did finally find anything on this by by White Christian Ministries, mm-hmm. they basically applied this to to normal work life, but just with a you know a bad boss that's making you you know just grind away and doesn't care about you or whatever, but. The implication, they have implied that these bosses were all atheists, right? That's why they're so terrible, is that <laughs> they're atheists. Uh, and then this quote is just, oh, my God. <laughs> it says, as for yourself, what can you do? Well, remember that you are a redeemed child of God. Remembering this, give yourself to the Lord and do your work for him. And then he references Paul telling people to be good slaves in order to please God.
0: Oh my Um, gosh. This reminds me of like all those like really cringy work office quotes like posters where they're, you know, like they're like, oh, like hard times be like a duck or whatever where you look graceful on top and you're paddling like hell underneath. And it's basically like, why don't you struggle in silence? Don't let anybody know. Like, you can't don't reach out for help. Like, we don't want to know that you're having a hard time. Just work harder and make it look like you're fine.
1: Right. I think it's really weird that there's a lot of this in the Christian faith of like, you just need to wait for God's plan to flesh itself out Mm -hmm. with the idea that that's what happened here with the Israelites. They didn't do anything and then God came in and swept through and took care of everything with Moses. Yeah. Instead of interpreting this in a way that implies that, hey, you know, why don't you be like Moses and take action? And, you know, understand that that's, you know, God working through you or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, try to make change. Yeah. Instead, it's just be a good slave. God likes good slaves and then eventually you'll be rewarded.
0: Yeah. Just like put your head down, keep going.
1: So after this, Moses gets angry uh, because God's not doing anything. Um, And God basically repeats his plan to him again that he's going to take care of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then... God tells Moses to speak to the Israelites and tell them that they are to be saved and brought to the promised land, which he's already done. Uh, And then the Israelites this time don't believe him because they're being worked harder and beaten harder. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then uh, Moses doesn't want to talk to the Pharaoh either because he tells God, hey, the Israelites didn't listen to me. Why do you think Pharaoh's going to listen to me? So then God repeats the plan again, basically. He charges Moses and Aaron with bringing the Israelites. And then now we just kind of jump into a genealogy of Moses. Yeah. uh, Which is generally uninteresting, except for one fact, which is that Amram, uh, Moses' father, married his aunt.
0: Yeah, here we go again with the incest is okay sometimes.
1: Usually it's a sister or a cousin, but an aunt was an interesting one for me. Yeah. And then we start all over again, and it says, It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, the same Moses and Aaron. And kind of tells us the same story in a little bit different style. It's one of those other, you know, weird repetitions in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we go through God again telling him to speak to Pharaoh and what to say. Moses again saying that no one listens to him. Right. Uh, And then uh, God tells Moses and Aaron that Aaron will be the prophet and Moses is going to be the God, like you said. And they're going to speak to Pharaoh, but God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, show his signs and wonders, and bring the people out of Egypt.
0: Yeah. So then we get another amazing headliner. Uh, Before we had God talking about all the things he was going to do with Aaron's mouth and Moses's mouth. And then (laughs) we have uh, this chapter, which is called Aaron's Miraculous Rod. And so this is uh, when Aaron, so Aaron is the one who goes in front of Pharaoh and throws down his rod and it turns into a snake. Alright, so then Pharaoh turns to his magicians and they are somehow able to do the exact same thing. So they also create snakes. Uh Aaron's snakes are able to eat or it's not. Yeah, their heat. snakes
1: aren't as big. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Aaron has one big snake and these magicians have two little snakes. Um <laughs> so he they eat the um they eat the magician's snakes. Or sorry. Aaron has one snake and he eats the magician's snakes.
1: Yep. And so then Pharaoh is like. this is where Pharaoh gets hardened. (laughs) (laughs) His heart, heart, that is.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. So Pharaoh is like, oh, my people can do it too. So, you know, our gods are the same. I'm not going to let them go. Okay.
1: And this one just says his heart is hardened. doesn't say God did it or that Pharaoh did it.
0: Right. And I'm assuming it's because it's like, okay, your god can turn stuff into snakes. My gods can turn stuff into snakes. So I don't really see why yours is better. Yeah. Okay, this is so interesting to me that we have, on one hand, we're supposed to believe a miracle is being performed. And then on the other hand, we're supposed to believe either some sleight of hand, like how our magicians are, or is this real magic happening?
1: Yeah, that's. it seems to be the Bible admitting that people can do magic, right? It's not just God's miracles, there's magic too, which is very... Yeah. Contrary to the Christians who don't Christian let their
0: beliefs. kids read Harry
1: Potter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what were you taught about this as a kid?
0: I mean, all my understanding of this story literally comes from the Prince of Egypt. So Oh really? Yeah, for me it, I just assumed that this was some sort of um sleight of hand, like a, a trick of the eye. Like they're somehow able to make it look like these sticks turned into snakes. But when you read when now that I'm reading it back there's no explanation for that. It doesn't, not that I expect it to, because it doesn't explain, the Bible doesn't really go into detail about some of these things that I have big questions about, but it does kind of give me the sense of, like, maybe the Egyptian gods are real, too.
1: <laughs> yeah. Maybe
0: there's not as
1: good. <laughs> well, I think that's how a lot of the early parts of the, the Torah seem to read, is that maybe these other gods are kind of real, but the Israelite god's just bigger and better, apparently. mm mm-hmm. uh, But that that is essentially what I was taught as a Protestant was this idea that they were just magic tricks.
0: Yeah, but that's
1: not what it says. And you would think they would say that if they wanted to push the idea that these gods aren't real, they would just say that they were uh, illusions or something like that. Yeah. And since they don't, you could take that the next step and say, well, Moses is just a really good magician too. You know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's one common explanation for it. The other explanation I saw in an article on this was that it's it's the power of Satan.
0: Oh, I love that. That's
1: the other way. That's he says there's only two options. You're it's either an illusion or it must be the power of Satan that they're using to do it.
0: <laughs> so Satan can just be summoned by like any blasphemous God. Cause I obviously the Egyptians would be calling it on their own God. So is it just now we're believing that Satan embodies any anybody else. Anything that's not
1: God because he wants you to not believe in God. Um, but again, it's, I mean, it's either or fallacy. If you believe Satan exists as an alternative, you know, spiritual being to God, you could believe that any other God exists and is working through them. There's no reason to believe that only God and it's Satan, just those two. based on the information that's available, mm-hmm. um, or it could be power internal to Egyptian people, you know, those individuals.
0: Oh, you mean like they're sorcerers? It could just be
1: magic, you know? It could
0: just be magic, yeah.
1: Uh, a guy named B- Daryl Burling also has commentary on this. Uh, he believes, it seems, that supernatural power does exist, mm-hmm. in real life today too. Um,
0: and he's such Christian, as
1: demonic, Wicca, et okay. etc. But basically, his whole point is: if it's not God's, it's no good. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is just bad because it takes attention away from God's power, and so any power that you're using, that any power you're using that's not God's power, and is marginalizing the Power of God mm-hmm. and devaluing it is bad power, but that would also be a, a logical interpretation of the fact that that other power exists. Yeah, like that is the logical next step. Is if other people do have some power, it's like, well, they have power too. Maybe maybe it's smaller than God's, but it's power, and it maybe does marginalize it. But that's just what the facts lead to. Yeah. I also think, so uh, The com had an article on this that talks about the idea of magic versus miracle is really an illusionary idea.
0: Yes, okay, that's what I was like trying to get at. It's like, here we have in the same room a miracle and magic. And they're essentially the same thing, something that is happening and there's no scientific explanation for it. It's just like, beyond our understanding, but one is somehow better than the other because it's coming from a god.
1: Yeah. And not even just that it's coming from a god, it it comes from the the god. God, And that idea of magic versus miracles really only exists in the Judeo-Christian belief system, and it just seems to be a sort of pejorative understanding of polytheistic religions or spiritual religions that aren't monotheistic as primitive Mm
0: -hmm. that cognitive dissonance for me yeah okay so uh, as we know pharaoh's heart is hardened so they have to move on to the next part of the plan but they kick it up a notch because god originally told them to just turn like a little bit of the nile into blood but aaron really takes it to another level when he turns the whole nile into blood And then all the fish die. And the magicians are somehow able to replicate this too. This one I could see it being like more like of a sleight of hand kind of thing. Like, oh, we just got to turn the water red somehow. It is impressive that they are able to do this at the drop of a hat. Like they have all their magic equipment. If it is like fake magic, like sleight of hand magic, Mm -hmm. they're able to do all of this like at the drop of a hat. Yeah. But they can replicate it too. So Pharaoh, again, doesn't believe that they're really doing anything miraculous
1: yeah and i'm gonna parse this out maybe a little excessively okay but i noted here that first god instructs moses to go meet pharaoh at the river mm-hmm. and he's going to warn pharaoh that he will turn all the nile river to blood then strike the water with his staff he tells moses to do this okay and then it goes la- later and it says uh say to aaron take your staff and stretch out your hand right mm-hmm. so he he te- gives him the order a second time, but this time tells him to have Aaron do it. And Aaron now has the staff. And then in this version, instead of just the Nile, it's all the waters of Egypt, including water inside of wood and inside of rocks.
0: The hell? Like, yeah.
1: Be parsing out the kind of weird. Details. Repetitive and inconsistent ways of talking about it.
0: Yeah. And with this one, so later on, it says that um, Moses has to like pray all of this, all of the plagues away. This one, I feel like it just kind of disappears on its own or something. Like it says that the Egyptians are having to like dig near the Nile for water. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. So that doesn't work. So then they move on to plan B, which is froggies. So just a ton of frogs come all over to Egypt. They're like covering everybody's food. They're all in the way. It's really annoying. So then Pharaoh concedes and he asks Moses to pray away the frogs. And so <laughs> all the frogs die. And then once they're dead, he changes his mind again and says, like, okay, no, you actually can't leave.
1: Yeah, this time he hardens his own heart.
0: Okay. So then they have to keep moving on. So the next plan is gnats. And this is where the magicians draw the line. They cannot do gnats,
1: which feel, feels so much simpler than frogs somehow.
0: That's what I thought too. I you was know like, why. well, because I was imagining them having to make the frogs come out of the ground. I don't know. I think there's some wording in there about that. And I was like, man, I I don't know why. I just thought that w- that would be much harder to do and it feels like it would be so easy to just attract a couple of gnats, yeah. you know. But they can't do it. So then Pharaoh, but Pharaoh still says no. Did you have a note about hardening or Aaron or anything?
1: Uh well, this is the one where they say uh this is the finger of God. The What? Yeah, this is where the magicians Yeah, no, I'm say, just
0: saying like what like how did you, the things that you notice, I didn't notice the finger of God. Yeah,
1: I, I have a discussion that I'll talk about at the end of the plagues that okay. comes back to this finger of God thing. It's interesting because it's it's said by the magicians, not by any of the Hebrews, and you won't hear that kind of language anywhere else in the Bible.
0: Hmm. Okay, so then after the gnats, uh, then they send flies, which honestly feels a little lazy to me that they would go from gnats to flies and then they also make a point to say that goshen which is where if you remember that's where joseph's father went and settled they are not being affected by the flies so it's like god trying to show that he's making a distinction between the egyptians and his people
1: yep uh so at the end of that one pharaoh again hardens his own heart after he begs moses to get rid of the flies and then we have livestock disease so this time we go through the same pattern again But they kill all the livestock and, again, protect the Israelite livestock. And Aaron, again, doesn't really have much role in this one. Okay. It just says the heart of the Pharaoh was hardened. Okay. Moses goes and he throws some dust in the air. Mm -hmm. And this dust floats around and causes all kinds of festering and boils. And the magicians get the festers and boils, too, so they can't even stand before Moses. Mm -hmm. And then Pharaoh is begging it to go away, but the Lord hardens his heart. Then we do it again. This time, thunder and hail. So God has Moses go and do it. No, Aaron has him bring down thunder and hail. And it uh, gives out a warning that, hey, you you should go inside and put all your livestock inside because there's going to be thunder and hail. Some of them heed the warning, but the other ones say, nah, you're God's fake news. <laughs> and they don't do it and lose a lot of their livestock. Uh, and then again, Goshen is unaffected because that's where the Israelites live. Pharaoh begs Moses for it to stop and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart, as the Lord had said. Hmm. Then we come to the locusts. Aaron shows up a little bit in this one, but not much. So God tells them to go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So even though it says previously that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, God's admitting that he was the one who did it here. They threaten the Pharaoh to bring locusts. Pharaoh says, okay, I don't want no, I don't want locusts. That's, (laughs)
0: no 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 locusts
1: (laughs) Uh, apparently they've already lost a lot of their grain and stuff like that to the hail so locusts are going to be the last straw to losing all of their agriculture okay so moses tells pharaoh that they're gonna take their elderly and their people up into the wilderness to worship their god and hold a ceremony and he says we're gonna take all the children and then pharaoh says no not (laughs) the children you're not taking the children i assume because he's to recognize him like hey if you got your children here you have to come back yeah so then moses sends the locust, and pharaoh wants it to stop but the lord hardens his heart finally he sends a plague of darkness over the land aaron's not involved in this one and this one's really short some of these are really short and some of them
0: they go a little longer really
1: long and go into the detail of how who said what and why mm-hmm. some of them are just like next they send a plague of darkness and that's what this one essentially is yeah uh and pharaoh asked moses to pray for it to stop but the lord hardens his heart
0: yep and then we get the warning of the final plague so god tells moses that every firstborn will die from the pharaoh to the slave and even the livestock which is pretty messed up considering that non-israelite slaves are going to die and they haven't done anything
1: yeah so I, i looked at some christian blogs about this and it's really interesting how they interpret that line about the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill. So some of them are trying to say that while Pharaoh is seeing the female slave as just kind of meaningless and having no real purpose, mm-hmm. God sees the f- female slave as as having meaning. And so it, it's basically like they're saying he's really progressive for thinking that the female slave is worth killing her firstborn too, not just the Pharaoh. What? That's yeah, so it,
0: messed up. That doesn't even track
1: no it, it doesn't <laughs> but it, their whole thing is that pharaoh hears this and pharaoh doesn't know doesn't get it he's like well why would what does that have to do with anything i don't care about the slave girl but god sees her as meaningful
0: yeah no <laughs> <laughs> i don't care if he i mean i i get thinking oh she's even a part of god's plan but he's just gonna kill her kid this yeah isn't?
1: and she's a slave she's not part of even the kingdom of egypt
0: yeah she shouldn't be a part of this at all
1: It kind of reminds me, though, of the way that the world sometimes deals with dictators around the world. Mm -hmm. When you think about how the United Nations or the United States might respond to a global dictator who's instituting a humanitarian crisis, a lot of what we do is ultimately just harming the people in that country, right? We do things like cut them off from world trade. And really, it's not the dictators who are harmed in it.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's the people.
1: Yeah. And it's like we're kind of constrained by global politics and that we can't just launch a missile strike on a world leader necessarily. But God can do whatever he wants. He could just make this about Pharaoh, but he doesn't.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then we have the first Passover instituted. And Sky Daddy has a very specific way that he wants this to go down. <laughs> Sky Daddy. So he says that they need to take a year old, unblemished male lamb... They need to keep it until the 14th day, kill it at twilight, exactly, put blood on their door, eat it that night, and the cooking instructions are you're supposed to roast the whole thing over the fire, including its head and feet and all the organs inside of it. They aren't allowed to eat it raw or boiled. Uh, Anything not eaten in the morning needs to be burned he even like describes what they should be wearing That's when my they favorite eat it. Part. Yeah. You need to eat it with your loins girded, sandals on, staff in hand, and as fast as you fucking can.
1: <laughs> and then spin around and quack like a duck.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then like also this is a festival. So like be happy about it. Yeah. This is a celebration. And then he goes on to say that for seven days you're going to eat unleavened. If you eat leavened, you're out. Gone. Cut from the cult. Yeah. And then also on the first day, you're going to have a solemn assembly. And then on the last day, you're going to have a solemn assembly. And both of those times, you're not allowed to do any work at all.
1: Yep. Yeah. The whole thing feels like biblical, Simon says.
0: Yeah. Well, just like some fucking festival that just (laughs) sounds boring as shit. Yeah. There's all these very specific niche rules that you need to follow and none of them sound very fun how am i supposed to eat as fast as i can if i've got a staff in one of my hands
1: i love that that image in my mind of i just know holding the staff <laughs> and eating really fast
0: yeah also loins girded does that just mean like cover your private
1: i i talked about this a little bit in one of our last ones it was about like the funeral dress that they wear
0: okay that's
1: right and it yeah it it's just some kind of type Special. of clothing
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: For this one, I was looking into why the hell does God have such an issue with leavened bread? And I found that throughout the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, there's a lot of symbolism of yeast as being sort of symbolic of sin. So the idea, I guess, here would be that they're supposed to rid their house of sin during the seven days. I couldn't really find the explanation as to why it represents sin or why it's okay to have this symbol of sin in your house all year except for on certain holidays but that's what i saw about it
0: yeah that's super weird because so in this first part when they talk about it they make it sound like god is the one telling them specifically to eat unleavened bread but then once the event is actually happening it's because they're being rushed out of their houses and they don't have time for the bread to rise or whatever so it's unleavened
1: right which makes a lot more sense to me is you're just trying to make it clear that they're in a rush. Yeah. And you put that point in there as people want recognize that that means they're hurrying.
0: Right. I'm pretty sure I was told that that is what the host is supposed to represent. The little cracker that we get on Sunday. Uh huh. It's like a representation of the unleavened bread. It's just like a flat.
1: Right. It's like matzah. disc.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And it, I specifically remember it being explained to me it was because they were in a rush and so they ran out and stuff, but. Yeah. It's another one of those things that's probably just because of the different editors.
1: Probably. Yeah.
0: And also trying to make everything intentional, like God had it specifically planned this way.
1: Right. So I guess next is the the final plague.
0: Yep. So then God does the horrible thing that he says that he's going to do. He kills a bunch of babies for no reason other than to show his awesome powers. And that's uh when Pharaoh finally decides so that that's enough and he lets he lets the people go.
1: Yep. God finally unhardens his heart after yeah. he gives him the opportunity to show off his magic by killing everyone.
0: Yeah. Wait, okay. I like really feel things when I watch this in The Prince of Egypt.
1: When the little ghosties no, flying around.
0: That image of the little kid there's like a clearly an Egyptian kid walking into his home and he's carrying a pot. And you hear the pot shatter. Oh yeah. And you see his little baby child little baby hand arm. fall to the side. Oh my gosh. And then when Pharaoh is like he's got his son uh covered in that really sheer cloth, it it honestly breaks my heart a little bit. I know Yeah. <laughs> they, it's really
1: messed up. Even it though they're is. the villains, it's pretty it's pretty dark.
0: Yeah, you feel sympathy for them. And then that's just it's because and I think you're supposed, to, yeah. you're supposed to. You're
1: supposed to blame Pharaoh. I think when you watch that, right? Like, but he when did you this look back at the words and you see, "I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt."
0: Yeah, and well, going back to just the fact that even if you don't feel bad for Pharaoh, that little kid that I just mentioned, we don't know what his family was like, and then also the fact that we said that it was going to be the slaves' firstborns mm-hmm. too, the people who were enslaved. So yeah, it's just messed up.
1: Yeah. Bible's a a dark, dark place.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, The last thing I had about all of the plagues that was interesting was, again, from my favorite, Mm Torah.com. So if you look at all of these plagues and the kind of imagery that they use, a lot of this has really close parallels to Egyptian culture. So some of the examples that Professor Scott B. Nogle Mm -hmm. uses here talks about, there's uh, something called the Tale of Ifur okay. in Egyptian culture, uh, ancient Egyptian culture, which includes the Nile turning to blood and a defeat that comes at the hands of foreigners. Mm-hmm. There's also, when they when they turn the staff to serpents, it's similar to the tale of Pharaoh Chip's court, where a priest turns a wax crocodile into a real one and back again. And it's also really similar to the depictions, if you think of like the, the little paintings that are like Egyptian paintings where they have serpent staffs. Mm-hmm and then like i talked about before where they say the the finger of god yeah that's similar to the finger of toth or finger of seth which is a symbol in egyptian ancient egyptian culture and again they don't really use that phrasing anywhere else in the bible
0: that's really interesting i wonder if that was if the goal of that was to get egyptian people on board with it like to use similar myths of them. I Okay, I have to, like either they're appropriating, they just think it's cool, and so they're using it, or they want to appeal to Egyptians.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. I, I mean, at the time, they weren't really anywhere near Egyptians or trying to necessarily convert them, and Judaism isn't a proselytizing religion. They don't oh, try to yeah. convert people. Yeah. So some of the theories about this, one is just that, Egyptian culture was so widespread that everybody knew about it, mm-hmm. but there's not much evidence of that. And another one that's really interesting is that many biblical scholars and historians think that the Levites were actually Egyptian. So this would have been a group of Egyptians who left Egypt and sort of combined with the Hebrew culture. And they actually passed along a lot of their sort of cultic beliefs, which became part of the Ju- the Jewish religion.
0: Okay. so they.
1: In along with this theory, there's the idea that the Ark of the Covenant, and a lot of these other things, comes from their culture and beliefs. And further support for it is a lot of these names from the major characters in the Bible, mm-hmm. such as Aaron, Moses, Assur, Hophni, Hur, Miriam, and Phineas. Okay, they're all Egyptian names. Okay, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's sort of a group that would have broken off from Egypt. All of this, this story, this idea of an Exodus. It's potentially a restructuring of an original story of them just leaving Egypt into a different narrative.
0: Okay. It's Like a watered-down Egyptian myth to create some kind of origin story.
1: Kind of, yeah. I mean, they would have actually left Egypt, but then it became a story of the Hebrews being enslaved and then running out of Egypt. Okay. Okay, well, I guess that's where we can close it for today. Sounds good. We'll keep going next week, further in Exodus, with them leaving Egypt and parting the Red Sea. Okay. Bye, y'all.